Kovacic will slot it home. Yeah. And he does so. Kovacic turned into the empty net. His promotion to Doncaster Rovers. Can you believe what has happened in this last minute? Now then, just like Andy Butler, we're back as if we'd never gone anywhere. Yeah, after an unplanned silent podcast for a month that led to literally one of you to write in and ask what happened to us, uh, we're here again with episode 20 of Podular Stand, a Doncaster Rovers podcast from Popular Stand fanzine. And though the return of football might be on the horizon, it still looks set to be some time before the likes of us will be able to sit on some weathered red plastic and, and watch our team play live in front of us. And so with that in mind, this episode of Podgerstan is dedicated to the place many of us loved watching the game the most, particularly those of us uh, of a certain age, I think, Bellevue. Uh, my name remains Glenn Wilson, and joining me via whichever online video meeting app is the least glitchy for us this month is editor of the London Economic, Jack P. Now then, how are you doing? I'm good, Jack. You good, mate? I'm, I'm I'm all right, mate. I'm all right. You know, um, uh, you know, we, we're getting on, um, and uh, I'm looking forward to a healthy dose of uh, nostalgia to sort of uh, get me through the week. We can't if we can't live in the present, mate. We can only live in the past. Well, that's what I've been doing a lot of recently. I think, yeah. <laughs> but I. <laughs> so, like juggling, this podcast is always more satisfying when done with three objects rather than two. Uh, but sadly, we've no James McMahon this month. Um, so, I don't know, you'll just have to picture Jack and I on top of unicycles or something like that. So it sounds more entertaining uh, that way. Um, so it's time to crack on then. And, and as I mentioned, this podcast, we're focusing on Bellevue, Rovers' home ground for, for 85 years from, uh, from 1922 until to 2000. In fact, it was um, 98 years ago this week that the ground officially opened with a Midland League game against Gainsborough Trinity, which Rovers uh, won 1-0. I think it's safe to say that the, the bulk of this podcast will be spent talking about the ground's more modern history, given that, you know, it was, it was 1990 when I first stepped through the turnstiles, and I think it was Boxing Day 1990 at that, and I suspect it was a few years after that for you, Jack, as well. Yeah, yeah. Although I must say, you know, so, so, so the, the stuff that um, I heard touted about a lot before sort of like when I dug through the, the, the annals of history in the past is, is the sort of record crowd um, against, against Hull, which always astounded me, which is, is you know, close to 40,000. How that happened, given, you know, my memories of the, of the ground, obviously it was a lot bigger then and, and, and stuff, which I think is remarkable. But the thing that I found more remarkable, which is something that I've just dug up today, was that in 1922, of the, uh, the sort of like circa 30,000 dog people that could get in, 18,000 were seated. There was 18,000, no, sorry, 1,800 seats. Yeah, that would be the, I saw there wasn't a main stand from, from start to finish of the ground, really. Well, so, so there was always 1,800 in the main stand? No, that's not right. Oh, maybe not quite. Maybe some of those were in the, uh, in the town end. Yeah, but but I, I I do believe, or I'm, I I would I, you know I would guess that that we are one of the few clubs that, and you know sort of like when you get more modern, you lose more seats. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, the, we'll come on to the, the the stand at the town end and, and and why that disappeared. But but yeah, it is it is an anomaly in football that, that a, a ground that had held as many as as you say thirty seven thousand at one point. Not only got smaller, a lot of grounds did get smaller as they got safer, but to have less seats in it by the end than it had. Yeah, because it because that because that was I know I know we're coming on to speak about that side of the ground, but that was one of the things that you would never really 
think about sitting down. It wouldn't even come into your mind that you'd, you'd buy a seat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know anyone who's a regular sitter at the, the Bellevue, actually, now you mention it. I know people who went in there occasionally, but I don't know anyone who... Well, you'd be the exception to the rule if you said, yeah, sit down at football at Rovers. You know, you'd be like, that's a bit weird. <laughs> get, Mr. get Mr. Lardy Dar with his seat. Ooh, look at it. Look, him in the heavens. I bet he doesn't do not even take a tram to the game. <laughs> so that, that always shocked me as well. Because like, obviously we, we didn't see the ground in its, in its heyday. You look at old photos of the ground, it is this huge, great, not particularly when it was first built, but in the, certainly by the 50s. It's this huge, great bowl of a, of a ground, really, extending yeah. back a lot further than it was in the times we, we went. And so, you know, to, to look at that ground, like you say, and to be told that, oh, there was 37,000 here once for a game against Toll, you're just looking around going, where? How? Where, what, what, you know, <laughs> were people smaller then? How, how did it happen? I mean, even up until the, the 70s, you know, I was looking through one of the old Rovers photo books I've got this afternoon before we recorded this and you know even in the 70s a lot of that terrace was still there so we it's remarkable like one that we didn't miss out on that by many years but just how quickly the ground deteriorated I think yeah like you say it's it's I've had it in like you you talk about Bradford's ground for example you could believe that there was 30,000 40,000 people in there at one point one day Mm. you know the rugby league ground even like would be another case in point for that you know Mm. um but with like you say it's sort of inconceivable with Bellevue because when I went into it I couldn't even conceive that there'd be more than 10,000 people in there you know (laughs) never mind like those sort of numbers can I remember that like being twice that there was more than 10,000 in there. I think that was the, the Villa game. Because uh, I don't even think the Arsenal game was over 10,000. I, I stand to be correct, it probably was just. But I know the Villa game was a bigger attendance. And I think a league game against Sheffield Wednesday, and I think that's it, that creeped over yeah. 10,000 all the time I was going. So yeah, to have three, almost four times that in that space is, is remarkable. Remarkable. Just on a, on a general point around the ground, oh, I did the one thing that did make me laugh looking through old photos this afternoon was there an aerial shot of the ground in the early 70s. Uh, and even then, massive potholes in the car park. <laughs> <laughs> Not the modern phenomenon I thought it was. Yeah, because that, that has to be one of, I mean, I'm, I'm sure like everybody knows the Top Gear um, special where, where that was probably the focus of, 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 of the piece, which is that you, you open your door and, and your leg goes, three foot below where you, where you thought it was going to go and then uh, and then you and then you move on and it's um uh, but yeah i mean for me that was always sort of like one of the initial outstanding mem- out- which i'm surprised that it stretches that far back in history actually but um i think yeah the, you, no one, anyone ever thought to sort of do anything about it i think they might have been listed oh they probably were <laughs> and the house is built on top of it now do you have to go do you have to park your cars in there Oh, there's still where the houses are built. There's still like big craters in people's gardens, or like just in just in downstairs rooms. Yeah. <laughs> to strategically place a very a very circular table. As <laughs> uh, people like try to eat lunch around their knees right now in those houses. One thing on the ground in general, because when we were initially going to record this podcast um, at the end of July. Let's confess, people, me and Jack went for a beer instead. We're not going to lie to you. <laughs> it was a nice day. We didn't want to record nice the podcast. When we were initially going to do that in July, I asked you listeners, those of you who follow us on Twitter, to let us know sort of your memories of, of Bellevue. And, and one thing that came up from quite a few people was what, what they thought of when they thought of Bellevue was the, was the smell. I think it's Steve Daniels on Twitter described his main memory of being an, an olfactory experience 
you know, the, the hit as you walk through the turnstiles of, or he described it as pucker pie, cigars and stale urine. I think Mike Follows and Ben Thompson, regulations both sort of had similar descriptions, but with, you know, with woodbines and fried onions instead. And I think that's, that's my first thing too, really, is that, 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 <laughs> that stench, for want of a better word. That, you just don't get it. You don't get it in modern football grounds. And I don't even think you get it in non-league grounds, weirdly. Yeah, well, that's true, actually. You see, that's a really good point. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I guess that with the, the bit that we're factoring in there is the time difference. I guess, I guess, um, can you smoke in non-league grounds these days? I, I guess you still can. I mean, yeah, probably. it's outside. Yeah, but 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 I guess I guess it's sort of like it was expected of you to sort of have a packet of Marlboro lights and 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 and, uh, and the burger smell was always a big one. But but just to sort of add a bit of sort of nice, you know, like we say to stench. I I I grew and I'm sure you did tremendously fond of that first. Well, probably not the urine bit, but the uh, the rest of it was 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 quite a lovely thing to go into. But the other thing that always I always remember is that after that initial hit. Of the fags, of, of the of the fried food, all that kind of stuff. You always got a whiff of grass, and you and that's when you always were, were sort of reminded of how close you're going to be to the action, uh, and 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 also that we had a bloody glorious pitch, of course. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you mentioned people like smoking it. Again, I think it was uh, Joe, one of our other followers. I've forgotten Joe's surname. Apologies to him, and it's it's not on his Twitter account. I think he mentioned. Um, uh, like seeing a, a guy stood next to his dad just smoking through an entire packet of cigarettes over the course of a game. <laughs> it's like the first time he's ever seen anything, or you know, last time he's ever seen anything like that. But yeah, yeah. I think maybe I, I feel like similar to you. Like I can remember that that sort of smell sort of dying out as you went into the garden. Maybe it was the smell of grass that sort of came over. I don't know. Well, I, I, I honestly think if you could bottle it, if you could bottle the smell of fried onions, Benson hedges and grass somehow, this is a plea to anyone who might be working. Um, I, I would, I, I would, I would happily burn that candle. <laughs> Don't know what the missus would say. Is that, what's the, oh, Yankee candle, isn't it? They, they do everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like that's the next one. The Benton and hedges, fried onions, uh, wet grass, Yankee yeah. candle. Been wasting a trick with all these sort of potpourri type smells, haven't they? Trying to, yeah, man, they it's trying to relax really people, not psych them up. <laughs> it would as well. It'd rile you a bit. It'd be like, come on. Why <laughs> the players? Come on. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I must say, just if we are, if we, if the future of football, at least in the interim stage, is doing the ten pound a game, watch it at home thing. Well, that that is the obvious cry for stuff like that. There's a massive call for it. There's literally like you get. I, I think we've got something here. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to people and see if there's anyone in the industry and say, right, well, if we're watching football at home for at least six months and you're gonna put ten pounds on, go outside your house, stick a candle on, come back in, and you'll get that smell when you come in. It will sell like hotcakes, mate. Honestly. Alternatively, take up chain smoking and leave and leave the grill on. Is yeah, the just, quick yeah. <laughs> quick solution just, just just dig up some wet grass you could do it that way as well yeah <laughs> don't clean the bathroom for a week before the game and just leave the door open <laughs> yeah make sure you don't piss in the pot as well yeah miss miss the uh, bowl for a week and then uh, yeah. watch the game in there while smoking <laughs> with a with a george foreman on the go at your feet yeah. <laughs> it's the future yeah. <laughs> Let's move on into the ground, or almost into the ground. We're gonna, we're gonna, let's go through it, sort of round the ground, stand by, stand by stand, I think, to get the full flavour of Bellevue. And we'll start with the, uh, the main stand, which we already started to touch on, and the fact that it did have... I think you're right, I think it was only a th- about 1,000 seats in there. 
Yeah, and although although I can't remember anyone ever having a, a seated ticket or sitting there regularly, I have sat in there, and I think I did the same as other people have done, which is wait until half time and then sneak in where there's no seats from the uh, yeah. terrace. I remember doing that as a kid. I, it, yeah, off Twitter, it didn't seem like I was the only one by any stretch of the imagination. So the, the first time I ever went to Bellevue to a game, and I have confessed this in the fanzine before, so this isn't a new revelation. I was actually in the away end. And I was in the away section of the main stand. Um, I was there with family who were from Kent and they were chewing on Maidstone United. And I got, I got let in for free by a policeman who saw my auntie and uncle going to the, to the turnstile and saw me. And he was like, oh, you go through this gate and then go and wait for your, for your mum and dad at the top of the, top of the stairs. Didn't seem at all put out by me running past shouting, they're not my mum and dad. Um, <laughs> simpler times back in 1990. <laughs> But what I, what I think I was going to say, what I remember about that is seven years old. And I think I needed to go to the toilet or something during the second, during the game to be particularly annoying for seven-year-old. And I think Rovers scored whilst I was in the myriad of rooms under the stand. And what I do remember is just, I can't remember anything in the game, but I do remember is like the thud of feet from the main stand when Rovers scored <laughs> of people celebrating, just like this, this, like people just stamping their feet the length of the stand and wondering what the hell is going on. That, that stands out for me. Well, yeah. So, so like you, I've sat, I sat once and, um, and, and again, hospitality, I'm sure, is something that will feature quite regularly. But I did have the opportunity to do a hospitality back before the port cabins, back when it was, you would go, you, you basically had sort of like um, some horrible food in the, under the main stand but still quite an experience just to actually be sat up there but 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 because you sort of like that at that point it was like looking down on the spot where I would always have sat which, which stood sorry which is is sort of like um, as you come into the main stand three down from the uh, cafe where I could sort of whet my appetite for half time something or other but like that's that was always my spot and I think that like a lot of people I think probably similar now but like it's even more remarkable when you think about it being standing a lot of people you could probably draw a box around where they where, where they would stand week in week out and you can expect to find them there the next week you know which is always you know which is actually the same for me for no other reason than that's where I stood the first time I came in you know I, I can remember going down there towards the end we did go into the um, into the sort of like the town end and, and, and we sat there um, sorry, we stood uh, every now and again, but but by and large, for about ninety percent worth of the games that I I went there, I I could probably draw a box around where I stood. Yeah, and I'm I'm exactly the same on on the other side again. And I think most people who attended regularly, be it season tickets or be it just as often as they could, would be exactly the same. You know, they had their spot in the ground. That said. I know of some people, I've I, I maybe exaggerated before, I think I know of some people who did sit in there or people I'd known for years who got a bit older and started sitting in the stand. The one bit of the ground that I don't know anyone who ever chose to stand there is sort of the main stand side terrace, the bits that were uncovered to the side of the stand, you know, out from like the edge of the main stand to the corner flag at either end that weren't under the roof. Yeah. People clearly did stand there, quite a lot yeah. of people. I don't know anyone. I don't know of anyone no. who ever stood in those sections. No. Um, I, I caught with my brother this weekend about his memories. And he said that he went to a game and he went really early. And, 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 and in the bit between the tunnels is, is sort of like, um, I never, never thought you could stand there. But he said 
he went early enough that, that you could stand there and you could you could put your head around the tunnel and see the players come in and out and all the action and stuff like that. And um, and yeah, he said it was well worth the value of getting there probably a, an hour before kickoff. I think he actually said that he got that he got there and went in when the ground opened. Um, and this is back in the day where where he, he wouldn't have been able. To, I mean, I don't know what he did in in, in, in the intervening time, but but he, he he managed to bag that that spot. Now I wonder if there's other people who went on a weekly basis who said, yeah, well that's where I stand. And then they've got these like, four pesky kids. Um, but but apparently that was a good one. So speaking yeah. of the main stand, places where I never thought people would stand, that was also was, one of them. That was a popular spot. Like, I think I when I first started going regular in like or more regularly in the first season in the conference before I really settled into going to the pop stand. A few games, me and a few friends stood in that in that get in that space. Uh, I mean, first off is, is the oddity of the ground having two tunnels for the start. Yeah, which is yeah. I think that was a big. I think the Football League weren't happy about that. The, the, the two teams, there was like the teams and the referee, the home team and the referees were in one tunnel and the away team were in a separate tunnel, which is always a weird thing that the, the club had to sort of appease the Football League about. But the other thing was, like you say, you could, as you would have said, you could lean over and sort of see if the players were coming out from the tunnel. Yeah. And I, yeah. one of my stand-up memories from there is standing there, you know, we were late, mid to late teen, mid-teenagers probably, and uh it was first season of the conference and Rovers had got a rare win. It was early in that season and everyone was quite delighted. I remember a mate sort of leaning over to over the wall to like pat all the players on the back as they went off. We nearly lost him because he tried to pat Matty Cordwell on the back, who uh, was <laughs> not the tallest of players. I think someone had to grab him by the waist to stop him disappearing into the tunnel I had first. Did you ever do a tour of the ground or uh, anything like that? Because it's not, I know that people who went to school locally sometimes were afforded that stuff like that. But we, obviously, I, I, I wasn't born locally, so never got the chance and never really thought of doing it. But did you ever do anything like that? No, never. Because uh, I would love to have seen the low deck and seen what the changing rooms were like. And uh, just purely because of that, sort of like, just how do you coordinate the teams coming out at the same time? And, uh, yeah. and, and just, you know, what, what, what did the tunnel system really look like? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, who, who's to say that they didn't just keep going to the race course? You know, they just went down under the road, <laughs> carried on going. Yeah, I don't know how the, what the layout was now. I think I'd been in the odd room under the stand, but not, you know, I feel like only, there's probably only two people in history who ever knew their way around that stand. It was such a, yeah. it was such an odd, particularly in the later years. It just seemed to have addition after addition put onto it. It seemed to be like new stairways stuck on the front. You know, there's yeah. the cabins stuck on the back. There's little oddities like what I would call Mark Weaver's bunker, which was sort <laughs> of in the, just in front of the stands. There was a weird sort of like, almost like Second World War-esque sort of post yeah, yeah, yeah. thing that Weaver had a habit of standing in, feeling vaguely protected and looking smug out of when he, when he didn't feel safe on the, in the dugout. It was such a weird collection of blocks really and then um but then you look at pictures of it sort of in the 50s and before yeah. it looks magnificent the uniform yeah, yeah, yeah. stand but in, in those light years and especially when you had the the adverts on the outside you know people took driving into the car park thinking it's a tile depot because of the massive hoarding the, the full size of the uh, the stand on the outside facing yeah. the right um, well i think then, i think you and i both know that sort of um uh, makeshift became the sort of buzzword for what we sort of how we dealt with that ground for at least probably 30 40 years before we actually moved out of it yeah I mean I had a lot of work done in the last sort of four or five years of the ground when we came back into the league but like you say 
up to that point, it was it was pure makeshift. I mean, those those porter cabins. I mean, Steve Utley, late Steve Utley, I should say, the former like media guy at Rovers. He he told me that his first day he turned up and saw these offices, and he he went in what was supposed to be his office, and he put his foot through the floor. On like, <laughs> that was his introduction to working at Rovers. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a wonder we signed any. I mean, I, I know we did a lot of work on the training ground, and we obviously used to, presumably we used to take players there first and try and sign them before we had to take them to Bellevue for a photo shoot. It can't have appealed much to a, a pro footballer yeah. by the by the early two thousands. Although the ground, as in as in the, the pitch, sorry, must have been. I always thought that was the thing as well. Like it's one thing to t- turn it up to lower league stadiums, and and then you look at the pitch. Take Newport, right? I mean, if I was a professional footballer, turned up at Newport and I was playing on the beach every day of the week, I would be like, it's not worth the effort. Like, yeah. it's not worth it. But like, you turn up to Doncaster and, and a pitch that's literally like a carpet and you think, well I, well, I could probably knock about on that for you know a few bob on a Saturday. Yeah, we, I mean, we've touched on that in, in past podcasts before, but it worked, you know, I think we did in the room as one and, and another one. You know, the fact that it was the... It was the biggest pitch in the football league for a long time until I think it was uh, Billy Bremen who, who, who shortened it a little bit to suit Rovers' style of play. But it was the biggest field, and it was it was famously a great surface because you know it was attributed to the soil it was it was built on. And they tried to Wembley tried to buy it. I think or the FA tried to buy the surface for Wembley once in the seventies. Really, I'm sure we've touched on that before. And I, if I've got that wrong, I'm sure we'll be corrected. Well, in, in my in, in in the depths of my research today, I stumbled upon the uh, the uh, famous pitchcare.com website where where they uh, had a, an interview with uh, former assistant grounds manager uh, uh, Ken Westfield, um, and 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 he makes the note that like because because one of the things that I often thought was what about these sort of like you know like for example the cup runs and stuff like that. You must have so many managers turning up and just being fed up to be there, you know? <laughs> like, it's a Tuesday night, it's cold, like, the facilities probably aren't up to scratch. However, he said a lot of those would go away and compliment the ground staff on, on the pitch. And really, that's what matters, you know? And that's, that's the thing that I think, whether you're, you're a player or a manager, you probably didn't mind turning up and, and playing on Doncaster. It was, you could play expansive football and you could, you, you, well, actually, you could play football. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and and I think that's the key. You know, um, and it was just it was just so immaculate. There wasn't there wasn't a. I I never remember any of it being you know torn up or or, or ever you know ever remember any patches in the pitch where it might be well you can forgive it. It was never like that. I mean yeah. to, I mean towards the end we even had these incredible patterns strewn across. Uh, I don't <laughs> know if you remember, but like. I mean, it got really sort of, um, I mean, it was Premier League standard stuff, you know. It probably wouldn't have looked out of place in the Premier League. Well, as you say, as a pitch, it was, it was definitely one of the best. I've just checked, actually, well, uh, and it was 19, 1980, Billy Bremner shortened the pitch. So up to 1980, it was the biggest pitch in the league, which it's, it's a wonder we didn't play better football, historically, <laughs> if we had this great advantage. Well, it might have been a pull for Sean O'Dea. You never know. Because it was still up there, even when oh, yeah, he yeah. was there. I think, something you mentioned there, if you see any like clips of games played there, even from late season, the pitch still looks like it's still green everywhere. And there weren't many yeah. lower league pitches that were like that in those days. Let's move around the ground. Let's move to the town. And since we've touched on it before, now prior to sort of, definitely prior to our time, 
the town end also had a, a seated stand on it known as known sort of locally as the as the cow shed which i think for maths we can work out held about 800 now yeah. this was, this was the former main stand from rover's previous ground on bennett and it had been yeah is there pictures of this there are some dotted around yeah if you can find some let me know because i've i've, I've dug around for that and and, and i haven't found it Okay, from the, through the magic of technology, I'm going to try and show Jack a picture of that end of the ground now with that stand on it. Oh, blimey, yeah. Oh, yeah. The cow shed indeed. <laughs> that is ancient. There we go. Right. You, just, you just listened to Jack's first sighting of the cow shed. When you, when, you, when, when you sort of dip below the camera, I actually thought you were trying to draw it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hey, we haven't got all day. <laughs> I, yeah, I was digging out a photo that I'd found in a book earlier. So this, this, the cow shed was the it was the main stand at Rover's previous ground at, at Bennetthorpe, and it had been moved moved on to the keep moat on rollers of some kind. And then, unfortunately, it was it was there until 1985, and then after the Bradford fire, it was it was torn down because it was deemed unsafe. Which I I, I just think it's a tragic shame, and I, it, it was so dramatic, drastically removed. You know, I, I feel like it's a shame there wasn't a way that it could have been kept on because i don't feel like the main stand was drastically any safer unless it was it was probably down to exits i suppose perhaps but i feel like maybe there could have been some something done to to salvage it and keep it going because it, it was such a piece of history you know it was older than the ground itself well yeah i'm, <laughs> I'm afraid i can't shed any in, in, insight into that but uh but it would well, yeah i've well, only ever just seen it for the first time now i didn't expect you yeah, to have the answers so, uh, scratching around and, and no unfortunately i can't give you anything on that but um <laughs> Well, yeah, blimey, that is a shame. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, John Coyle actually had, had tweeted saying that he used to, so the cow shed used to be like a, you'd pay a fee to go into the ground and then you'd pay a bit extra to go into the stand with your transfer fee. Um, but the bloke who took those transfers would disappear not long after half time. So there's a lot of people who would wait until about five or ten minutes into the second half until he'd gone and then go into the cow shed. So it always, it always finished the game a lot fuller than it started. <laughs> but Quill was, was one of those people and a few people have shared memories of sort of similar to the main stand of hammering the floor and hammering the back wall when Ravers had a corner at that end and things like that yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah sort of a dubious way of, of, of running that and maybe we get into the bottom of why it's not there anymore <laughs> yeah. if, only, if only there'd been more money for its upkeep but who could say <laughs> that we didn't bring more in so even allowing for that having gone I think even in my time that end of the ground had quite a lot of existences it was it was there you know i remember standing on it for an fa cup game with huddersfield in in the mid 90s you know slightly reduced in size but still a terrace then it was closed then it was reopened but like only like a row of it i seem to remember for like the last season in the conference initially if you ever see video of the the five one win over dagenham there's just like a handful of people behind that goal which looks a bit weird and then it was sort of when we came back into the league, it was it was reconquered at a much steeper angle actually, so it probably offered a better view. Um, and then latterly, of course, it had the uh, executive boxes, aka two tier porter cabins, uh, <laughs> which must be it must be again. Speaking of clubs, speaking of things that only Doncaster Rovers would do, that's <laughs> got to be unique to us. It's, Surely, yeah. I mean, <laughs> actually, you know, speaking of. I can remember in the FA Cup when we when we played Ebbsfleet a few years ago. I'm pretty sure that their hospitality was in a port cabin. But can you think of any other examples? No, like only only in like non-league. Certainly no double decker port cabins. Now um, that's a touch. 
Actually, I remember Offset having two port cabbies on top of each other because it definitely looked like the top one was leaning towards the pitch more than it should do um, when we went there in the FA Trophy, but not in a row like it. that behind behind the ground, you know. So it, it made it look like um, like celebrity squares or something, didn't it? Or like <laughs> university challenge. How long were they there? About three seasons, four seasons maybe before the ground went. I remember, I remember people turning, turning the lights off and on during the penalty shootouts in the League Cup, trying to distract the players. Oh, man. That's, that must be one where, where, where professional sort of like Premier League players turn up and think, what the hell is that? <laughs> are, you, are you still like, you know, tens of thousands of people hurling abuse out of them and they turn up to the view and there's someone in the stud thinks, I know what will distract these guys. <laughs> Yeah, can you imagine? No, <laughs> no way can I take it. To be fair, it might. I mean, they weren't the best. Maybe that. Maybe that being on for the full amount of a game and extra time, the bulbs were just going. There's every chance. Now, memories of that stand. I'm not sure why, but but it's certainly the stand where I and other people have been exposed to the elements more than ever. <laughs> um, I can remember being at my most coldest there. Um, and my brother recollected this weekend that he was so cold once that he had his hands in his pocket and um, and, and a ball came towards him and he just let it hit him in his chest because it wouldn't be the worth the effort. <laughs> that was the better option. <laughs> like, it, like a guy at the fairground taking a cannonball, just, just let it hit him. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> And yeah, I can remember randomly being there on crutches once, which is dedication. Um, so basically doing the entire game on one leg. Now, I never really went for, I never did the drinking thing hugely at, at Bellevue, but, but I always remember being there really early and literally uh, having a great view until two minutes when some guy comes out uh, stinking a bitter and is, and is six foot three and stands in front of me. And, and it happened religiously did you, did you know- every time. I was going to say, did you not move? But you can't move, can you? Because you've got your spot. Mate, that's my spot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it would upset the entire game. I'm superstitious. We might lose. Yeah, it's a fair point. I don't think I went in it after it was refurbed. I, I, I always think with when you say refurbed in, in relation to the town end, it does require sort of like inverted commas for, um, <laughs> for people listening. By refurbed, I mean actually built. Um, yeah, built in the first place is probably a better. Uh, yeah. Let's okay. Let's let's go down the opposite end. Let's go to the uh, the Rosenton end, which was largely more often than not, bar a few occasions, was the away end for certainly for the bulk of my attending. So it would have been for yours yeah. as, as well, Jack. Yeah, yeah. Um, although there was one thing that a lot of home fans might remember about the Rosso end, particularly. Those who, those perhaps sort of younger ones, would be the younger ones, people in their sort of thirties. <laughs> That's what I mean by younger ones. I, I know what our fancy audience is; they are the younger ones. But the uh, was the five-a-side football pitch at the back of the uh, the back of the stand at that end, which uh, Nick Hepworth tweeted to say he remembered that he remembered having five-a-side football parties on the barely fit for purpose pitch behind the Rosso end, and it, and it was just like a partially bordered concrete square by the end. Um, but to, to come back to one of your earlier points, Nick does remember uh, part of the party would then mean you went for uh, jelly and sausage rolls in like the players' lounge. Oh, very nice. <laughs> yeah, I think I played a couple of times on that five-a-side pitch, and it was it was like that was 
Rovers junior setup back then was go and have a kick about on that five-a-side pitch and try not to impale yourself on anything. <laughs> so the first time I went in the ground as a waste supporter, I went in the I went in the main stand. But I have also been on the terrace as an away supporter as well. I don't remember much of it. I remember being, it, was, it was not a bad view. Obviously, you're opening the elements again. There was never any permanent snack bar in the end of the ground, which was always a bit odd. It was always like a catering wagon or something like that. We actually had a, a tweet from a, a non-Rovers fan who, who reads the uh, fanzine, uh, Marco, who's a Huddersfield Town fan. And... Um, he tweeted an interesting thing, which, which rings to me, actually, was he said that even though, it, even though the, the, the terrace was right on the pitch, the homestand always felt miles away from that terrace. And he says he feels like, every, looking back, every visit feels like it was a scorching August bank holiday, uh, but, it, but it can't have been. But he seems to remember there being like an air of like possibility, but it was always early season when they came there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, it, could, yeah. I mean, it could have been the, the size of the pitch probably did make it look a bit, yeah, slightly more daunting, but... Um... My, I've only got one sort of memory worth sharing of that, which is when I went to watch Donny, I'm sure it was in the Cup, League Cup, against Grimsby. And it was quite a, uh, it's quite a game. And I can remember that the home fans and the away fans, in where the two corners met, mm. um, of, of the pop side, uh, sand and the, uh, and the Rosso end, they, they were sort of given at each other sort of verbals and stuff like that. And then I think that sort of like it's very rare that you actually get anyone who actually is keen on, on doing anything about it. But in this one instance, there was two fellas who were like, well, yeah, I think I'm going to follow this through and realised that the thing that was between them was a small wall and a tiny bit of pitch. So they just started running across to each other. But, but other than that, I've got, I've got relatively little sort of like notable memories of that. It's, it's amazing the, the work that, just some small walls does in keeping angry football fans away from each other a bulk of the time, isn't it? Like you could put two rows of seats in front of football fans and I oh, I'm cool if it wasn't for those two seats. <laughs> oh, God, I'll get you next time. I was coming to see me outside. If it wasn't for this very flimsy netting and this, yeah. this elderly oh. steward, I'd be right at you. If this octogenarian wasn't wearing a fluorescent jacket. <laughs> You're lucky you are. <laughs> Coming back to uh, the Razzle end, it had the cages on the front mm. long after Hillsborough. It felt like, <laughs> felt like the, they were there far too long. We really like penned away fans, and I'm surprised any away fans got a positive memory of it, to be honest, particularly up until the latter years. And it, and it was extended into that grassed corner in the, in the later years, of course, when we came back into the league. The only thing I can remember, I can still distinctly remember the advertising boards from the top of it. And I still remember there being one for Handel's Banken, and I remember there being one for Cockin Electrical, which was always a favourite. Blimey, that is, that is well placed. <laughs> 13 years on, I, they're ingrained in my mind that those two advertising boards are there. I should have, I should have got them, shouldn't I, when the ground closed? I wonder if you could, actually, yeah. Were they, were they selling off parts of the ground when, when, they, when they shut it down eventually? I think they did, but I don't know how much they managed to sell before... Um, Oh, we, something we didn't touch on with the main stand, which was the post-stadium closing explosion, which was a pure slapstick where a couple of guys had sort of broke into the ground and helped themselves to a boiler or something, but left the pipes and the gas flowing. And then later that same evening, two, a couple more people decided to go to the ground and help themselves some things and couldn't see much and lit a match. And the result was a massive gaping hole in the back of the uh, stand, which then meant they had to speed up the demolition somewhat. <laughs> 
so then on on then lastly to the uh, the side from which the fanzine takes its name, the popular stand, pop side, which was where I stood for the majority of the time I was at I was at Bellevue. Um, we had a few tweets in from people, and I think Ben Ben Thompson's memories were quite interesting. He says that the um, after the pop side was was shortened, so it was um, nineteen eighty seven. The pop stand became a much smaller stand after mining subsidence. Uh, they got rid of the cover and the, the initial extension, but a lot of the banking was still there. And uh, Ben says him and his brother regularly used to conduct their own pre-match pitch inspection from the banking above the <laughs> pop stand. The other thing Ben remembered was that uh, one of the turnstile doors was was like didn't need to be locked because it had warped so badly. It just it was just locked and open using a steward and a, a bludgeoning it with a two by four. <laughs> so they'd, they'd unlock two of the doors and then a steward would come out with a piece of wood and just hammer the other door open for people to start going in. I go. think my memories of it will always be the sort of um, the mass migration, you know, because it's because it's sort of like so condensed and. People did move in packs, and they're sort of like, yeah, it was always, it was always like a spectacle to see, uh, yeah, just just people drifting from one side of the sand to the other like a wave, you know. Yeah, it was weird because because they used to stand in the middle. You just see a lot of movement, but wouldn't necessarily see the people going. You know, the yeah, it was you had that big section of us that that just stayed in the middle, and then there was other people who would go from end to end, depending on which end rovers were attacking in each half, which is always quite interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. The other thing, I mean, one of the things I loved about that side was you could you could go and Bellevue in general, really. I suppose is you could you didn't have to miss any of the game. You could go and get a drink or something to eat, and you could watch the game the entire time. When they put the um, when they extended the the pop side when we came back into league and put a toilet block at the other end, you could actually still watch the game while using the urinal. If you went to the middle urinal and you were over say five foot ten, there was a little window there, and I maintain it was the best view in Bellevue because you think like, the, main stand's, the main stand's got pillars in the way the seats the rest yeah, yeah, yeah. Of got other heads and stuff in the way but that you those that block of toilets at the back of the stand was raised up above that stand it was high enough to see over the snack bar at the end of the pop side perfect view I, I, there's many a time yeah. where I've pretended I needed a lengthier uh, piss than I actually <laughs> needed to watch an attack unfold the only other ground that's probably similar to that is Bristol Rovers where where you would um, out of choice going to their facilities because it was so exposed to the elements that um, that's that's the only place you were safe so so I, I think I spent about 45 minutes in, in, in their, their, their urinals last time I went to watch Donny I think on a bus three sort of like December day yeah well, that's it you, you, you didn't have that sort of respite anywhere else at, uh, at Bellevue you were always out you know the, the pop stand roof did a, did a job if you're right at the back I don't think the main stand roof covered that much of the terrace really despite that extension because it was so high yeah I, I feel like that was the best thing and the other things that, that stick out in memory is like in, in sort of summer games or early season games particularly like if you went to a pre-season friendly when it got to half time the entire terrace would just sit down on the uh, on the concrete and you just see that like a sort of like a wave of people just like going to the ground yeah um, so you, you didn't really go in the pop stand though did you Jack? Well, mate, if I'm honest, I am as a man who sort of likes a bit more peace and quiet, um, uh, a bit less hustle and bustle. I sort of, yeah, I tended not to sort of frequent the popular stand. And um, uh, although I do regret, I, I, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm told that we went in once, but I can't remember it. But um, yeah, but I, I sort of do regret, it, yeah, um, because I think that I, I think that if I went tomorrow. That's where I would go. But yeah, historically, I sort of, 
I found myself in the safety of the, uh, the main stand slash uh, town end if I felt a bit more uh, raucous. Yeah, it was, it was full, of, full of uncouth people in a pop side. Well, do you know what I mean? Seething Doncastrians singing, singing raucous songs. I think with a lot of the ground, it's, it's, it's quite difficult sometimes to, to stretch the memories of the ground rather than the people in the ground. And that's, that's what yeah. we've tried to do here, I think. We could, we could do another podcast on, on memories of fans and songs and things like that. I think we probably will at some point. But just on, I mean, yeah, I, I was, my spot was, was the middle of the pop stand with, with the main group of sort of singers for a long time. And then as this as a wave of sort of younger singers came in and we, they annoyed us, so we edged along a little bit. <laughs> but, but generally it was the middle. And the weird thing was like the, when they put the TV gantry for one, you know, which is a fancy term for bits of scaffold bolting together on the roof for the sort of latter games, it's, it was supposed to be temporary, and then it just seemed like they just kept adding bits to it, like each season. So by the end, it was like for us at the back in the middle, it was like watching the game through someone's garden gate. There was so much sort of metal lattice yeah. work in front of us, yeah, yeah, and yet we'd yeah. still choose to stand there. Um, I mean, the, the view from the middle of the pop side was wasn't great anyway. If, if the ground was full for the busier games, unless you were sort of you know six foot odd as I am, you couldn't really. If the, you couldn't see what was happening in the near corners, there's quite a few games in, in big crowds where my role was to tell everyone else around me what was happening, like when the ball yeah. was in the corner. Again, I'm, I'm not sure whether this has got anything to do with it, but to th- throw the pitch in again, like, I always remember that sort of natural sort of the curvature of yeah. it, which probably meant that if, and because like really on the pop stand, you were sort of pitch you know pitch high because it was almost like so i guess like that would make sense it's almost like looking over the horizon isn't it you know yeah it it, it dropped to the it dropped a bit to the running track and i feel like it dropped again down to the the front sort of walkway of the pop stand so the first the first few rows certainly you'd be sort of eye height with players midriffs rather than sort of face to face but that i mean that was the other thing It, it it felt you know even at the back of the pop stand it felt close to the players. You, you know, we were, we were so close that we could genuinely interact with the players and they could determine which one of you it was that was shouting or singing something as well. I remember um, when Chester came for the conference playoff and Kevin McIntyre was getting a lot of stick from the Rovers fans having left and one of our group yelled something at McIntyre. I'm not going to repeat it because it was generally awful. But McIntyre actually froze and looked at the stand and looked directly at the person who'd said it. And just he looked horrified because he could actually yeah. see who it was who was who was saying things to him. And just I remember like, you know, our own players joining in, like Greg Blundell and Barry Middler sort of joining in with jokes from the stand during the game. Because you were yeah. that close and you had that level of interaction that you, you don't really get from and it doesn't always feel like the the start of the stands at the chemo in the pitch probably like not that much bigger distance than the start of the pop side and the pitch but it just just the way you stand together and the, the nearer you are it felt like you were more involved I think wherever you stood yeah you'll have seen some sort of Simon Marples and uh, Michael McIndoe heat down that down that touchline which you know experienced close up is is quite a wonder yeah it was that was the thing, like, there's a, I always revert to this clip, there's a clip on YouTube somewhere of when Rovers played Hull in 2004-5. It was the season after we, we bit and pipped them for the Division 3 title and we just come back into the league. 
it shows the goal anyway, and it shows the reaction to the goal, which is great. But there's a there's a clip before that where Rovers break down the left in front of the pop stand with with Tim Ryan and McIndoe. And just I I can almost when I see it from the camera vantage, I can sort of almost simultaneously see it from my own vantage in the stand. Yeah. Just remember what it was like to see these these quick players just bomb past the fullback in front of you. And just that it just instinctive sort of guttural roar that it gave from all of you. You got yeah. you got a better sense of the speed because you were sort of more at their level and you were seeing them they were going past you rather than beneath you, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of brought out sort of good. Two thousand people brought out the same reaction. It just made a big, big impact. Yeah, well, it's like watching motor racing live when you're right next to it. I bet it's quite thrilling, isn't it? You know? I mean, you know, I'm stretching it a little bit, but still, he could run. <laughs> yeah, he was quick. I think we've done the whole ground. There. I think we've done it a decent service. Yeah, the start bit is definitely my, and the smells as people have picked up on Twitter are definitely my overarching sort of um, memories, and probably always will be. You know. And it did have, have, have its many idiosyncrasies. Um, it, it became a bit of a patchwork job towards the end. But I think that, it, you know, it's a, it's a hell of a special place. And it served as well over the years. And, uh, and it also just, it's fascinating to see how much it's, it's changed over the years too. Um, and just, yeah, just glad to sort of uh, know that I, I experienced it. And, uh, and we have some great memories there as well. Yeah, definitely. I think... I think that's key, like you said. I mean, we've, we've talked on previous podcasts about what makes a strong football ground for us and, and the character of a place and things like that. And, and you can definitely say Bellevue had character, particularly in the later years. I'm sad I didn't see a lot of it in its heyday. I'm sad I didn't see the, the full pop side or the, or the cow shed or anything like that. But, you know, when I, when I think about watching Rovers, even now, even like 13 years after the, the ground ceased to be, if you like, I think I've only just... I probably watched Rovers in each stadium sort of an equi, you know, equal amount of times. But when I think about me and watching Rovers, I think about yeah. Bellevue. Yeah, yeah, that's so a good I point. Yeah, as, as do I. Yeah. All that time on, that yeah. is what watching Rovers was about more than, more than what we have now. And, I, you know, I've grown to like the keep, mate. But the first thought in my head when someone, you know, if, if someone mentions Rovers or whatever, I think of walking into Bellevue after the stewards bludgeon the door open, walking into Bellevue, getting hit by those those smells, looking for the people I don't want to stand near, <laughs> and, and going yeah. to my spot behind a piece of metalwork which will obstruct my view for the next ninety minutes. That's football, mate, and it's, and really, it's the th- those are the things that are just yours as well, which is sort of like when we talk about ground, you do tend to air towards the people, the, the, the ones that have character because because they're 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 unique. To them, yeah. um, and and I'm not saying that we won't we won't build that up and, and keep up will provide that. It's a, it's a lovely ground, but um, yeah, there's certainly we've we've listed a raft of things today, which are, are, are things that we experience and things that belong to Doncaster and we unique uniquely Doncaster Rovers, and I think that's a really special thing, you know. So certainly, it's a ground that's gone but not forgotten. Definitely, and because of that that sort of evolution of the ground as it as it grew and then compacted. And then had the sort of flurry of change in the latter years. Even more so, everyone has their distinct memories of, of what they picture as being Bellevue. You know, there'll be people older than us who picture it as being in the cow shed or being on this fast terrace, being in the, the old bar at the back of the old pop side and things like that. Everyone's got that first thing that comes to it. But it's evolution as a ground. It, it probably makes those memories more evocative than, you know, the keep mode perhaps will do because the keep mode's as it was now, as it was 
when it opened you know very very little will change there really um so there we are i think i think that's bellevue definitely covered as it as it can be in in audio form uh thanks to those of you who tweeted in your memories and, and apologies if yours didn't didn't make the uh, the final edit uh, as ever we're interested to to hear your thoughts so if you've any any feedback on the podcast just you know get in touch with us via twitter at viva Robes is always the best way uh, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to re- review the podcast on the app or site on which you, you're listening. Uh, just just click a, a big number of stars, as we always say. It, it helps. And, and don't forget to subscribe as well. Um, one other bit of news before we leave you, and, and you might see it on Twitter, we're, we're intending to bring the print fanzine back for 2020-2021, for seeing as uh, football cannot manage to finish a, a season without us. Um, we still need to iron out a few aspects of that. That's you know, including things like when we can print it and, and how we can get copies to people if people aren't attending matches, things like that. Um, but, but once we've got that sorted, we'll, we'll let everyone know the, the full details. So, so bear with us, and you'll get more news on that in time. Um, so there we go. Thanks, thanks, Jack. Thanks to you for joining me. Anytime, mate. Always a pleasure. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. And uh, until next month, we'll see you. Done. I can't remember how to stop recording. Oh, there we go.